Hi, I'm Kelly Schreiber, Social Media Manager for Mayo Medical Laboratories, and I am back here with Dr. Maurice. Hello, Dr. Maurice. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thank you. And today we're going to talk about technology trends in laboratory medicine. Okay. You ready? I, I'm, I'm right. always, well, yes, I'm ready. I'm not <laughs> always prepared, but I'm always ready. Great. Well, let's kick it off with how has technology changed lab medicine from the early part of your career to now? Well, first of all, so it's a little depressing to think there's now an early, my career has now hit the phases time. I'm old enough to have done that, so there's now an early phase. But um, I think that really the most dramatic change since I was training as a trainee, and, and really I've only been on staff since 2000, so 17 years, which you think in the span of time is really not that dramatic. There has been a really dramatic impact of technology on the practice of laboratory medicine in particular. Uh, what when I started, pretty much the pace of technological innovation was such that it, it typically a piece of equipment, if it came into the laboratory and was new, uh, took a long time to perfect. They were big and bulky, and there was about a 15-year life cycle. So once you bought in a piece of equipment, you knew you were going to be working on that state-of-the-art equipment. I can use finger quotes there for those on the podcast for about 10 to 15 years before you're really looking to move on to a new technology or a different technology. And so that really defined the pace of lab development and the introduction of new tests. And in the last, since I joined the faculty of Mayo Clinic to now, that life cycle is now probably a three to five-year cycle. So it, it's the the, the uh, way technology has changed is it's really almost like we have seen societally where technologies have become so advanced so quickly and they cycle so quickly uh, that it's really had a pretty dramatic impact on the practice of laboratory medicine. So that to me is the most dramatic change, and and our because our field is not one that's really designed for rapid adaptation, you know, in terms of knowledge. So and how we make diagnoses, we really most laboratorians really want those those tools for diagnosis to be well established. We develop a familiarity with them, and now they're coming at us fast and furious. Well, extending on beyond that, what technology do you think has had the largest impact on lab medicine? Um, the largest impact on laboratory medicine actually has been not an instrument, but uh, an algorithm or, or a computer. So what do I mean by that? I guess the one thing I didn't realize, and this was happening when I started my career, was the Human Genome Project. And with the Human Genome Project was really where the, um, the, the technology was created to create massive amounts of data and then use a computer to assemble a puzzle that the human mind could not and because it was too big and too complex. That was the only way they were going to sequence an entire human genome was to develop this technology. What's happened, and that has had a huge impact on laboratory medicine, because if you think back, if I think back, or we collectively, anyone listening to this podcast thinks back about uh, 15, 20 years ago, every test that we did was a single analyte. So you would design an assay typically for a single analyte. I want to know what someone's even a CBC would be, there'd be a hemoglobin and a white blood cell count. They were very singular analytes, and that's really how we thought about developing tests. That's how we thought about delivering tests into the medical record. And so now you have a technology that can take literally um, hundreds of thousands of analytes, simultaneously analyze them, and reassemble them into a single quote result, which in the, 15 years ago would have been 15,000 results is now a single result. And because of that, the technology has really changed 
we really haven't. The healthcare system hasn't really, it's had a huge impact and we don't really even fully understand it yet because really the healthcare system as a whole has not entirely adapted to this technology change. So there's some uh, doctors and, that would like to see this technology used to produce massive amounts of data around every patient. There's others that feel that this is really inappropriate, that really, the, that it's an over, a wealth of data that, that patients, most patients don't need or will ever understand. And payers don't know what they're paying for either. I mean, when it's a single test, single analyte, single result, it's very easy for an insurer or a government payer to say, yep, I can pay for these things and not for those. And now they don't, now there's one massive machine with one massive test that generates lots and lots of information. And, and yet um, they, you can't really decipher if it's really adding value to the patient care episodes. They're reticent to pay for it. And so that's come out on a lot of different things that we see um, in terms of patients having to pay more out of pocket for these tests and the, and the out of pocket um, or the pre-authorization that was never a thing in laboratory medicine where a patient would have to get pre-authorized like they would for an expensive procedure. So it's had lots of, lots of ramifications that are just unfolding and continue, will continue to unfold during the majority of our career. Definitely. Well, going back to your career, Dr. Maurice, can you describe a specific scenario of technology in action that you experienced? Um, well, besides streaming radio, that made my uh, made my office a little bit more enjoyable <laughs> to be in. Um, no, um, the I guess in my own personal experience, the early my my of course my background is in flow cytometry, and really to see the power of the flow cytometer increase so dramatically over the course of my first ten to fifteen years of my career, where we could take a single cell and learn two or three or four things about that cell per flow tube to now where we could take a single cell and learn 15 or 20 different ways to interrogate a single cell in solution. And that's had a big, big impact on the ability to actually detect abnormalities and determine what cells are normal and abnormal and to get a much better footprint, if you will, or fingerprint of an abnormal cell. And that's, again, true of flow cytometry, of a lot of these technologies, and the power really is it's actually changing our paradigm of how we think about many diseases. So on the one hand, this, if you take cancer, for instance, during my career, between the ability to create drugs that are more effective in treating cancer, as well as now our ability to use things like a high-power multicolor flow cytometer to detect very small numbers of abnormal cells, we can get to the point where we start to think about cure of a disease. Same for HIV, right? With HIV, with these really high sensitivity molecular methods. But when I mean, gosh, when I was in college and, and even when I, when I started my career as a physician, HIV was considered pretty much a chronic disease that most people were eventually going to die from. To now where we have drugs that are effective in really controlling the growth and, of the virus and actually eradicating the pool. And, and now tests which are sensitive enough to say, yes, you really have no detectable HIV RNA or no detectable cancer at a level that we can, as we start to study longitudinally, we can say it's really most likely not going to come back. So, you know, I don't think we can say we've cured cancer or cured HIV, yet between the combination of um, those two technologies, they have really changed how we think about the use of the laboratory and how we actually think about these diseases. And I think going forward, one of the things that's really going to be exciting um, is understanding through laboratory tests 
the interaction of the environment with um, our bodies and how they contribute to diseases that we never, in ways we never thought of. And I think it's like some of the exciting work that I'm just starting to experience there um, is in the area of the microbiome. And so where you can look and say, based on a person's flora, intestinal flora, or even skin flora, we can now find that there's ways that a person's body is responding to their own internal environment is actually driving disease conditions. So there's certain um, microbiological com compositions or flora that would make someone prone to actually develop cancer or might make someone prone to develop heart disease. And these are things that we never thought of. It actually, it's ironic to me. I like to spend time when I have more time to spend, but when I, I like to spend time, I would wander over to the a Mayo Clinic uh, plumber building the library of antiquity and read some of the older literature just for fun. And uh, when I was feeling particularly nerdy. And so, um, and you go, if you read, there's like, from like the turn of the century, it, there was a whole body of literature about how cancer arose in areas where patients had an infection or trauma. And if you read that as a resident, you know, circa 2000 or 1995, I thought, well, that was a bunch of bunk. They had no idea what they were talking about. And now it's coming back around to, yeah, maybe cancer is in part uh, driven, uh, I quote, infectious disease. And not just when there's virally infected cells that become malignant, but just the organisms that we live in and around are somehow shaping or probably shaping our immune system in a way that makes us susceptible to get other diseases. So it's, so that those are things I'm experiencing right now that that I think are, are particularly impactful and, and kind of exciting to see fold out. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Well, that's all that I have for you over here. Is there anything else that you want to share with us? I think it's going to be really important um, for us in our profession to really understand um, and embrace the technological change because it will come. I mean, there's lots that we could go on and on. I mean, what's going to happen to laboratory medicine with, with the um, miniaturization of technology? What kind of things that we use a big instrument for now in a central lab will happen at the bedside or happen without ever procuring a blood specimen? There's all sorts of things. What will happen when we have digital pathology is cheap enough that most slides will be digital and there'll be actually artificial intelligence software programs that will screen slides for conditions. These are all things that are out there. And I, as a professional trained in the mid phase of my career, uh, and even that early phase that people come and they're, they, they're intimidating and they're scary. And so I, I, the thought I think that we need to, is not to be afraid of this change, but to really embrace it. And if you think about, uh, take kind of a stretch, but if you think about another industry that's facing the same exact set of issues, it's the auto industry, right? There's the, between the autonomous car, between the car as a biometric device, uh, between there's all sorts of things that are happening. And we'll Google, we'll, in five years from now, we'll, oh, and also the movement away from people actually owning cars. I mean, there's going to be right. a generation of people coming up that will be more convenient for them to just summon a car that they don't actually own and they won't actually even have to know how to drive take them from point A to point B. And there's a lot of fear in the auto industry that, you know, is Ford going to be irrelevant? Are we going to be buying cars from Google and from, uh, you know, Apple and from, and it really, if you look at the industry, those who are most actually poised to adapt to the changes and to guide the changes in a way that's appropriate for society are actually the automakers. But that means they just have to really be open to continually rethinking how 
a car is purchased in society, how a car is used in society. And I think our t field in medicine in particular, which is so technology driven um, and so personal and generates so much information about patients, we just have to have, take the same mindset as all of us, but particularly me right now in a leadership role where I'm expected to be someone that's kind of standing at the front of the boat, seeing where we should be headed. So that's the kind of thought I would leave you with and, and people at the Z, because we could talk on and on about the technologies, but the important thing is how we respond to them, how we embrace them, and how we make sure that as laboratory professionals that they're used for the betterment of patients. Definitely. Well, as always, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Maurice. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. Okay. Sounds good.